Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening, and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue. Included with the podcast today, we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app, as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge, Jesus, or faith in general, we would love to hear from you, and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickle at crossbridgemiami.com or send us a text to our text-in number at 305 305- Nine three zero seven zero zero six. Once again, thank you for tuning in. And now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle. I'm curious about that every day, um, uh, and and how I can be a better person, um, maybe by following his teachings, and and maybe it will be a, a fit for me, and maybe it won't. But you know, I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. Well, good evening. How's everyone doing this evening? That's pretty good. I want to ask again just because I want to get a little bit more. How's everyone doing this evening? Okay, that, okay the, guys, we do this. Some of you went low energy on purpose just to mess with me. I know what you're doing. And I do not fall for it. We're glad that you're here this evening. We are looking at question number three in our series, Explore God. As Pastor Tommy said earlier, we are partnering in this series with 65 other, a little bit more than 65 churches here in Miami-Dade. And we are inviting the city to come in and to explore questions of doubt, questions of faith, because we believe it is important to think. We believe it is important to be honest with the doubts and the issues of faith that you have, and we want you to know that this is a safe place for you to work through those questions and those doubts. So two weeks ago, we addressed the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? Last week, we looked at, is Christianity too narrow? And if you missed those, you can always catch them on our podcast. You can go on our Facebook page to watch the live stream and, or our YouTube page as well. And this evening, we're dealing with question three, which is really the most fundamental question of any question of doubt, and that is, is Jesus really God? You see, if Jesus is not God, as Jesus claims to be, then it doesn't matter if Christianity is too narrow unless it's just from a social perspective. Why would God allow pain and suffering? It doesn't really matter the biblical perspective on that question if the God of the Bible is not real, is not true, if the central figure of the Christian faith, Jesus the Messiah, is not who he said he is. And so this question of, is Jesus God, is the baseline question by which really all of our other doubts pile off of and grow off of. Now, I know many of you come here this evening and you would answer that question, yes. Maybe you are a strong yes, you know that Jesus is God, and you have many different reasons, you have some things that you would share if someone asked you to defend that assertion, and some of you are saying yes because you have been in the church for a long period of time, maybe you were raised in the church, and Jesus has always been God. 
And I think this is one of the things that I want to say is almost a tragedy in the church. And that is, if you were raised in the church, you were probably raised from a young age to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, He is God in the flesh, He died for sins, and He rose from the dead. And though it is wonderful to be raised in the church and in a family that is a family of faith that will raise you with the truth of who God is and His Word, and it is a great blessing. As I got to celebrate last week, baptizing my son, inviting him and bringing him into the family of God as a, as a marked child of the covenant, it is a special, special blessing that he has. But one of the travesties in the church is that many of us were raised to believe certain things, but never given the freedom to actually doubt, never given the freedom to ask questions. And so we grew up throughout all of our lives believing that Jesus is God, and we began to have doubts. We began to ask questions. We began to wonder, what about the miracles? We began to wonder, what about the resurrection? We began to wonder, what about these certain teachings? But we were never given the freedom to actually ask those questions, to explore those things for fear of judgment of those around us. Well, if that's you, tonight's your night. Tonight is your night to put all your doubts out there, to be bold, to be courageous, and that is because in a little bit in the sermon, I'm going to invite you to text in your doubts surrounding the resurrection. Now, you may be like, don't doubt it. Uh, You know, like, you know, I got it. I wouldn't be here unless I was genuinely curious and on the path to believing that or if I believe that. But I know almost all of us in this room, if not all of us, have doubts and have those questions and have thought, what about this? And what about that? And couldn't that be an explanation? But maybe we've never vocalized it for fear of people looking at us and saying, whoa, that's, you really think that? Are you even entertaining that doubt? Well, tonight, You can share your doubts. You can text in uh, a little bit later in the service, and we will answer, I will answer some of your questions and some of your doubts in the middle of sermon on the spot. A little terrifying, a little exciting, all at the same uh, junction. And I told you guys uh, the past couple weeks that we've been doing this that I'll keep the names anonymous, and so I won't put you on blast and be like, John said, (laughs) you know, I'll keep it anonymous, but we'll work through it. And I want to invite you to please be courageous and please put it out there. And we want to not only address it tonight, but also follow up with you and give you some resources to help you work through doubts. Because thinking is the foundation of faith. If you don't think through your faith, then your heart cannot actually attach to it. So we need to think through it. And so I did a little experiment this week in my office. So we have an office here in Brickell at Pipeline. It's a co-working space. And I went around the office in the middle of the day. And I interrupted people as they're working on their computers, and I asked them this question, do you think Jesus is God? Just take that in for a second. I legitimately did this. I walked up to people, and I sat down and said, hey, I got a quick question for you. What is it? What's going on? Do you think Jesus is God? I'm a weirdo, guys. Listen, I lean right into it. Everyone in the office knows. And people are like, you're asking me if Jesus is God at 2 p.m. in the afternoon on a Wednesday? Like, who are you? I was like, yep, I'm asking you that question, and I want you to tell me what you think. And so I did this for an hour, literally walking around the office asking different people if they believe believe that Jesus is God. And I had some really interesting responses. 
most of the responses boiled down to, one of, to two sides of the equation. One was, well, I was raised to believe Jesus was God. So I was raised in church. I was raised Catholic. I was raised to believe that Jesus is God. And I maybe believe that. I'm not really sure. I'm kind of nominal in my faith. I'm not really, you know, involved in the church. I'm not really religious. I'm a little bit more spiritual, but maybe Jesus is God. But I really do believe that regardless, it's just kind of blind faith. There's really no evidence to prove whether or not Jesus is God. And so maybe is, maybe isn't. Not really sure. That was a chunk of people. The other chunk of people said, my biggest problem with believing that Jesus is God, and the reason why I would say no, he's not, is because I cannot believe that Jesus came back from the dead. That, that's the biggest thing. Maybe making the blind see, possibly, you know, there was some kind of like coincidence with the storm, you know, or maybe it was like really shallow water when he walked on water, but the disciples didn't know, not really sure. But the resurrection thing, people die, they don't come back. That's my biggest issue. And so I want to combat those two things tonight. I want to talk about the resurrection because really it's the linchpin of whether or not Jesus is God. Jesus did not rise from the dead. He is not God. And I want to also combat the other maybe widely held belief that there really is no evidence and there is no reasonable, rational evidence or conclusion by which you could say that Jesus is God, that your faith is just blind. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look in John chapter 8. And so I'm going to need you guys to be engaged, to jump on board. Are you guys ready? Are you guys ready? Okay, we're going to be in it. We're going to be in it because we're diving right into the pool in cold Miami weather. Have you jumped in the pool recently? It's freezing. Don't do that. Big mistake this time of year. I see all the people come down from Canada and they jump in and they think it's warm. I'm like, something's wrong with you. (laughs) I don't even get near the pool this time of year. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple, and he's in the temple with some of his disciples and some of his followers, and he's teaching. Now, the temple mount would have been a large, large courtyard, and Jesus is in there, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and people are gathering around him. He's starting to cause a stir because of the things that he's saying. Now, some of the people in the temple are not happy that Jesus is there. There are Jews that do not want him in there. They don't like what he's saying, and so they want to discredit him, and they want to get him out. So they come over to the crowd. They're probably listening in the back a little bit, and they begin to move closer to the front of the crowd, and they then speak to Jesus, and here's how they begin the conversation with him. John chapter 8, verse 48 says, the Jews answered him and said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What a way to start a conversation. They just come out and say, are, are we not right? Is it not true, Jesus, that you're a Samaritan? Now, this would have been an insult because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews viewed Samaritans as second-class citizens. They were half Jews and half Gentile, and so they were outcasted. They literally were, were outcasted out of the temple, out of the cities, they had their own area. And so the first comment is an insult. Are you, are you a Samaritan, Jesus? You're an outcast. You don't even belong here. And it's obvious, as we listen to you, that you have a demon. So Jesus responds. Verse 49. 
He says, I do not have a demon, just if you're wondering, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I love Jesus' response here. Jesus' response is first, I don't have a demon. Just in case anyone's getting nervous around here, no demon here. But he doesn't address the Samaritan comment at all. Isn't that interesting? He's insulted by being called a Samaritan, and he never addresses it. Why? Because Jesus will not validate that insult. Jesus has come for all people, Jews and Samaritans, and every other people group, and so he will not validate this supposed insult by being called a Samaritan. He won't even address it. He doesn't even bring it up. He takes it because there's no differentiation between Jews and Samaritans. All people are deserving of dignity, and so he will not address it, but he does address the demon comment. He says, I'm, I don't have a demon, and I'm also not here to bring about praise and recognition for myself. I'm not here so that I can get power and influence. That is not why I'm here in the temple preaching. I am here because I glorify my Father, who is the judge. They would have understood this, God as judge. And then Jesus says, if you want to have a merciful judgment, if you want God to look upon you with favor and with love, you have to believe my words. You have to listen to what I say. You have to believe in who I am, and then you will not see death. Some translations say you will not taste death. If you don't want to be eternally separated from God, if you don't want to taste death, not only eternal death, but even death in your life, if you want to be connected to the Father, I am glorifying the Father, and you need to listen to what I say. So they respond to him. And they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? See, their response is, okay, you're telling us that you glorify God the Father who is the judge and that if we believe you, we will not taste death. We will not see death. So that means that you must be greater than Abraham, the father of our faith who himself died. And all of the prophets who died as well, you must be greater than them because they died and you are claiming that if we believe you in your words, we will not see death. They're thinking to themselves, how's he going to respond to this? He's in the temple. (laughs) How's he going to respond to the Abraham attack? Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus' response is that he doubles down. He says, I am not here to glorify myself. Actually, my Father glorifies me. I'm on a mission sent from the Father here. And you are acting as if you know God, but you do not know God. 
I know God, essentially he's saying, I and the Father are one, as he'll say in other passages. And he points to Abraham, he says, you bring up Abraham. In fact, Abraham saw this day that I would be here and he was glad. You see, they would have understood what he was saying, but they would have disagreed with him. Back all the way in Genesis, God comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to give you the promised land, and I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky, and there's going to be a promised seed that will come from you, and that seed, that one, will be a blessing to all the nations. This is the promise. And so, Jesus is saying, I am that promise. I am that promised seed, the one who is coming to be a blessing to all the nations. Abraham, it says, was credited as righteous because of his faith. His faith in what? His faith in a promised seed that the Jews still today are waiting for, which is the Messiah, which is the Savior, the one who will come from the line of David and the line of Abraham that will bless the nations. Jesus is saying, that is me. Abraham saw this day, he believed in this day, and he would have been glad. Now, when they hear this, they're so dense, they're not willing to humbly hear this and receive this and process this, and so they go right back into insulting and discrediting. Here's what they say. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. You can only be smart once you're 50. That's what they're saying. And have you seen Abraham? That's literally their response. Jesus, you're like 30, like maybe 31. You're not even 50. How would you know anything? How would you know anything about God's word and God's promises and glorifying the Father and all, this th- all these things that you are saying? You're not even 50 years old. You're not a wise sage. You have not experienced enough. You do not know enough. And, and by the way, have you seen Abraham? Like, have you ever seen him? They're thinking to themselves, we got him. We got him. So Jesus responds. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw it at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, this is the mic drop moment right here. I call it the Messiah mic drop moment. He says, before Abraham was, I am. This, this aroused every single tension point and every bit of anger in them to where they immediately look to grab stones and they want to stone him to death right there in the temple, no trial because he just committed blasphemy. You see, what he says is very controversial. And it's why they're so angry. In fact, what he says here is what will eventually get him killed. Before Abraham was, I am. Notice the language. He says, before Abraham was, was denotes being brought into being. Abraham was born. He was brought into being. He had a time and a place. Before he was, before he was brought into being, I am. Jesus is saying... I am not bound by time and by place. I am past, present, and future. I am the eternal God. He is invoking the name of God. In fact, God himself in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, 
is speaking with Moses and says that his name is I am who I am. The name of God is I am who I am. And Jesus here in the temple says, you want to know who I am? I'm God. I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am God in the flesh. I am the promised seed, the Messiah who has come. And if you don't want to taste death, if you want to glorify the Father, if you want to know the Father, then you need to listen to my words. And they don't want anything to do with that. In fact, they want to immediately kill him for that statement. Because they do not believe that Jesus is God. They were trying to understand who he is, and Jesus made the claim that he was God, and they said, nope, and they're going to pick up stones and kill him. And you may be thinking, that is kind of an extreme response. Like, they could be mad, they could kick him out of the temple, they could put, like, Jesus' picture, have someone paint it, do not enter, whatever it may be. But to kill him on the spot. But see, there are only two responses to Jesus, either surrender or casting stones, It's either surrender or stones, because when we encounter Jesus, his words, his life, his ministry, all of us either surrender or we throw stones. Now, we may not throw physical stones, and even if Jesus was here, maybe you don't feel such hostility and such anger towards who Jesus is that you would want to throw a physical stone at him, though there are plenty of people in the world that feel that way. But we do cast mental stones. You see, when you come to Jesus and you question him and you look at his life and his ministry and his words, either you surrender and you say, Jesus, you are God in the flesh. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah who died for sins and rose from the dead. And I believe in you and I give you my life. I surrender. Or I'm going to throw stones. I'm going to seek to discredit you. I'm going to insult you. I'm going to talk about the things that you say are ridiculous. Nobody comes back from the dead. You didn't walk on water. It was shallow land. The disciples couldn't see very well. They had no glasses. Whatever it may be, surrender or cast stones. So I want to give you a chance to cast some stones in secret. To put some doubt out there that maybe you have wrestled through, that you've thought about. And I'm going to tell you this to to encourage you. I have so many doubts that I've worked through over the years in regards to the resurrection. So many. So you're not alone in having some doubts. Maybe you don't want to classify them as doubts. You just classify them as superficial questions. But I want to ask you to text in. You can text into this number, 305-930-7006. Text in and put some of the doubts or the thoughts that you have about the resurrection. What doubts do you have concerning the resurrection? You may say, you may want to say, I believe, but what about? Write it in. I'm going to give you a second to begin to see some of those come in, and we'll deal with a few of them tonight. Now, we all do question Jesus, and I think we all do question the resurrection. There is one thing, though, that we do not question, and it is important to set the stage here before we dive into the resurrection in particular. And one thing that is not debated is whether or not Jesus did, in fact, exist. Now, almost every single scholar agrees that Jesus did exist. In fact, 
this is what the overwhelming evidence suggests. That Jesus was a man who was a Jew born in the beginning of the first century in Israel. That he was, in fact, crucified by the Romans. He was buried. And that after three days, something happened. There was an empty tomb. There was a claim of an empty tomb. There was something that happened because it is very true and historically documented that the followers of Jesus went out from Jerusalem and began to share a message of Jesus who was crucified and risen from the dead, and it changed the entire world. That is not debated. A historical Jesus who was a Jew, who was killed by the Romans, by Pontius Pilate, who was buried. Three days later, something happened at the tomb. The the disciples and the followers of Jesus went out and changed the world as we know it. In fact, one of the most prominent atheists today, Richard Dawkins, who really, his life is about promoting atheism. He just wrote a book for children, teaching children how to grow up and assimilate an an, an atheistic mindset into their life. He even admits that Jesus existed. He was a real person. So he was real, and we know the facts, but the question is, what happened after that third day? What happened at the tomb? What happened with the resurrection? And while you guys are texting in some of your doubts, and make sure a few of them are coming in. I want to deal with one of them that I'm sure will come in, um, so just to give you a little bit of space and time, and that is, what if the New Testament is a myth? Like, what if it's a myth? Okay, we know Jesus existed. We know he was killed by Pontius Pilate and the Romans. He was buried. And, but what, and the disciples went out and they began to share and the world was changed. We know all of that. But what if it was a myth? What if it was made up? It was an imagination. It was fiction. There were some true things, but the resurrection, certainly not. I have a couple issues with that. The first is, it's not written like a myth. It's not written like fiction. Now, you may think, listen, I read Jason Bourne, okay? I read Tom Clancy. I've, I read that and I think, this could be real, but it's not. It's got all the details. It's got the cities. It's got all the stuff, but it's not real. It's a myth. It's made up. So maybe the Bible is kind of like Jason Bourne. Well, see, the problem is that is not how they wrote back then. You see, the writing style is not like a myth. If you're going to write a myth, it's very clear the writing style, and the way that you would articulate things. You read Odyssey. You read the, the, the fantastical stories of Zeus and Icarus and Oedipus. There's a very clear writing style that is obviously coming from the imagination of the writer. It is a fictional story that is to convey a message to move people. But the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, is not written in that way at all. It's written like a report, like a historical document. There are names, there are dates, there are places. There are real people like Pontius Pilate and King Herod that many other sources back up. There is Jesus himself. There are dates from a census to all these different things that would say that this is in fact a historical document. In fact, almost all scholars agree that the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, are written like historical documents. And they're true historically. 
So that's one issue. The other issue is that the first people to see Jesus back from the dead are women. No offense, ladies. They're women. Why is that a problem? Well, because women 2,000 years ago were second-class citizens, and they had half of the credibility of men. And so if you're writing a myth, a fictional story that you want to gain traction, you would never put women as the first people to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. A lot of people would just not believe you right there. And yet, the first people to see Jesus alive from the dead are women. Why? Because that's how it happened. Disciples had to have thought, a lot of people aren't going to believe this. But it's how it happened, and so it's what they write. And so if you want to go down the myth kind of, you know, trajectory and think possibly it's made up, it's fiction, you have to say that disciples knew they were lying. That's the only way you can get around it. You have to say they knew that they were lying. They, they knew they made it up. And for some reason, they added women as the ones to see Jesus resurrected, but it was made up. There are some true things historically, but then a lot of it is made up, and they knew it. So that's the myth. Let's see what else we got here. Okay. This is so fun. Some of you guys are nervous. I feel it out there. Okay. Let me uh, bring it up. Okay. Some of these are, are like questions for me that have nothing to do with the resurrection, guys. <laughs> Some of you are like, just ask me, like, what am I going to get for dinner later? <laughs> you know? Um, okay. All right. I'm just going to choose one and read it and see what happens. All right. Here we go. Can you support the resurrection simply by texts written by Christians? That's good. So that kind of ties in maybe to the myth question of how can you support the resurrection if the only, you know, text or sources that claim that Jesus rose from the dead are written by Christians? That's a good question. I mean, it, it's legitimate. You have to deal with the, the myth part of it. And I think at the end of the day, what you have to say is that, yes, there are not other sources that claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but there are other sources that claim that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So it kind of goes back again to something that we'll deal with in a moment, and that is that the disciples either really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's backed up by other sources, and that was really what motivated them to go out and to give their lives for this message, or they lied about it, and they were willing to go forward with that lie for the rest of their lives, all of them. That's a good one. I'm just going to pick this. Random ones. Okay. Ready? This is not a doubt, but rather a question of interest Smiley face with an angel halo emoji. Why did Jesus not show himself to more people when he rose from the dead and or leave more evidence of his resurrection? That's good. So I heard a bunch of you say, that's good, that's good, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, 
so the account in Scripture is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people uh, upon, you know, his resurrection. The question of why Jesus would not appear to more and just like make it like pop up like, hey, Pilate, I'm back, you know? Um, I don't know, okay? <laughs> you guys are all picturing that, right? Hands, you know? Remember this? You know? It's a good question. Um, I mean, maybe the way that I would answer that is there is an importance to faith, right? God desires for us to have faith. In fact, Jesus even speaks about that. When he prays, he says that those that will believe without seeing me are deserving of greater honor and glory, as opposed to those like the disciples who will walk with him and then will see him killed and then will see him actually physically alive, those of us here that have to believe in faith. And so why Jesus didn't have more evidence or reveal himself to more people, I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe the cop-out would be that's how God's plan, uh, that's God's plan and that's the way that he intended it to, to be. However, I do think that there's something very interesting about how God decided to do this. He used 12 disciples, and then he used the Apostle Paul, and he used other followers to bring about and to share this message with the known world that would change the world. In fact, it was shared so early on that there were many people that would have been able to discredit the evidence of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what I mean by that. The, the Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about the resurrection. It's where he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are the biggest fools and our faith is futile. But he says, but he did rise from the dead. He wrote that, and scholars attribute that to 35 A.D. Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist scholar, biblical scholar, and he's an atheist, says that in 35 A.D. is right around where we believe that the Apostle Paul wrote that. So three years after Jesus' death and resurrection, this source comes out, which means that they were going around telling people about Jesus, about his death, and about his resurrection to people who knew about Jesus and knew that something happened in Jerusalem. And so there's not all this evidence in terms of like uh, physical evidence that we have today, but there is all types of evidence that would suggest that something happened three days later and that there were a whole host of people in Jerusalem and all the surrounding cities that knew who Jesus was, that knew that he was killed, and that knew that something happened after the third day, and that these Christians were claiming that he rose from the dead. And they were, would have been able to fact-check what was being shared And so I don't know why God unfolded his plan that way, but I do think that there is a lot of beauty in the way that God allowed his plan to unfold and how he steered his disciples to bring us here today to this night to discuss these things and the way that he used them to write this very text that we read. There's something beautiful about that and something powerful of believing in faith that God is who he says he is as we read this ancient book of 2,000 years Let me pick one more. Okay. 
Here we go. Okay, I got a lot of the same ones. A lot of people are writing, not a doubt, but. <laughs> okay. Okay, let me just say one thing here. Some of you put the Shroud of Turin in here. If some of you don't know what that is, Phil Nicholas, raise your hand. You're a scholar on that. I'm not going to handle that. That's a wild thing. It's uh, pretty exciting, but I'm not going to jump into that. Okay. Okay, one of the other things in here was that not a doubt, but, that's what I got, not a doubt, but what about it being a spiritual resurrection? Have, you ever, have any of you ever thought that? Raise your hand if you've ever thought that it could possibly be like a spiritual resurrection, not an actual physical one. You've ever thought that? Okay, some of you are like, eh, just right here, not going to put it up high. So this is actually really common because there are two kind of sides to this. So some people think maybe it was mass hallucination, so the disciples all hallucinated that Jesus rose from the dead, and so they had this experience of Jesus before them, and what they saw, they thought was Jesus alive from the dead, but because they had been prepared for this moment for three years, it was just kind of this trigger to where they saw something that wasn't real, and they believed it to be real, but it was a hallucination. It was a spirit, type of spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. I think this is an understandable doubt because, again, people die and don't come back from the dead. However, part of the problem is that the disciples claim that he was physically alive. They claim to have spent significant time with him. So it would have, been, it would have had to have been a hallucination that lasted for days. They claim that they ate with him. They claim that they put their hands in the hole, their fingers in the holes in his hands and in his side. So there was physical contact. It lasted for hours and days for many of them. They ate with him. They had all these experiences that would cause them to believe that he was in fact physically resurrected. And that is what they believed and what they claimed. And so a mass hallucination that lasts multiple days and affects all of the disciples in the same way is really hard to believe. I'm almost saying it's harder to believe that because that has never happened either. And not only is that difficult to believe, but the disciples then go on to give their lives for this message, and, they, and many of them begin to write what we have here as the New Testament. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you read the Bible, do you read letters and books that look like they're written by crazy people? Right? I mean, it's hard enough to read the Bible as educated people, as people that have spent time reading this. And yet we won't have to believe that every single person that wrote the New Testament was crazy. I've met a lot of crazy people, and I've never met any of them that could write like this. I don't know if any of us could. And so this is really difficult to believe. And I, I think at the end of the day, the doubts, you know, kind of all go back to the disciples had to have lied. See, some people say, well, maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he was like, kind of dead. And they didn't know. And then they put a spirit in the side, suffocating for hours, bleeding Jesus in a tomb, closed it with a, 
you know, a rock, a huge stone, and then Jesus was there for three days, somehow survived that, then rolled a stone by himself and came out and been like, hey, I'm back, medical treatment, please, you know, and was able to recover really fast and fooled everybody. I mean, that's really hard to believe. And then most people would say that I think what happened was the disciples stole the body. This is, in fact, probably the, the most credible doubt. Disciples stole the body. In fact, this is what the Jews and the Romans believed happened. And in the book of Matthew, he writes about it. In Matthew, I think it's chapter 28, Matthew says, a lot of people believe we stole the body. He actually acknowledges the doubt that is kind of going all throughout the city. He's saying, they think that we stole the body. But again, if you believe the disciples stole the body because something happened in three days, you have to believe that they all lied about it. And they knew they were lying. See, this is what makes it so difficult. And this is why people say there's no evidence for the resurrection. Here is the evidence. Either Jesus rose from the dead or the disciples lied about it. They wrote this fictional myth-like book or they stole the body or they had some kind of spiritual encounter, but then they tried to figure out how they can make it be a physical encounter because that would be more powerful. Whatever it may be, or Jesus didn't really die, he was just kind of dead and came back and he recovered quicker than any human being ever, and then they said that he had resurrected. Whatever it is, the disciples either lied or he rose from the dead, and here is the evidence for his resurrection. Every one of them, besides the the apostle John, who was exiled, not much better, every one of them was martyred and killed for their faith. In fact, Peter was crucified, and he asked to be crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be killed in the same manner as his Savior. Now, imagine being crucified for something you know is a lie, and then saying, put me upside down. I mean, I know that Jesus really isn't a Messiah, and he didn't really die, but I just want to go upside down. I want to really hammer home this narrative that he rose from the dead. See, People do not die for lies when they know it's a lie. People die for lies all the time. We see all this happen all the time in different type of cults, the Haley Bob Comet cult where all these people take their lives because they believe a spaceship is going to come and is going to whisk them away to another dimension. The Jim Jones cult where over 100 people drink poison, they die because they believe that they're going to go to a spiritual utopia. People die for lies all the time. However, They believe the lies are true. People do not die for lies when they know it's a lie, when they created it. So all the disciples would have had to die for a lie they knew was a lie, and then many other followers as well. And I think really the linchpin goes with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we know historically, was a Jew who was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader, and he gave many years of his life to looking to kill Christians to destroy the church. And then the Apostle Paul says that he was going on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Jesus Christ, and then his life was changed. And he began to then now dedicate his life to the very message that he was seeking to destroy. He gave his entire life to planting churches and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, the I Am, who was killed and came back from the dead. And here's why his life and his story is incredible evidence for the truth of the resurrection and the truth that Jesus really is God. And I have to attribute this analogy, this closing analogy, to one of our elders here at the church, Phil Nicholas, who told me that he woke up at three in the morning and God gave him this analogy. That never happens to me. I wish it would. 
He said, imagine this. Imagine there is a group of people who gather together and they fabricate a lie about this treasure. And they begin to go around and begin to tell people, we found this treasure. We found this treasure that if you invest with us, if you give us your money, if you give us your time, if you commit to this movement, it is going to bless you beyond belief. Your return is going to be unbelievable. It's going to change your life. We've unearthed the secret treasure, and we just need money to begin to continue to excavate it and to get it out. So believe us and trust us. And they begin to fabricate this whole lie together. There's a small group of them. And as they begin to gain followers and gain traction and people are excited about this, there's an FBI agent who begins to look into them. And he begins to devote his time to destroying this movement. He wants to figure out all the different lies and he wants to expose them. He tries to arrest a bunch of them. And then one day, this FBI agent calls up these leaders of this movement and says, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for trying to attack you. I'm so sorry for trying to imprison you. I believe I've seen the treasure. I know it's real. I want to invest. In fact, I want to quit the FBI and I want to come join you guys. Now, if you are that group of people that made up a lie about a fake treasure and the, the guy that was trying to hunt you down and to try to kill you just called you up and said, hey, I know it's real. Would you let that person into your group? No way. Because you know it's not real. You're like, okay. He's just trying to get in. He's trying to expose us. There's no way we're letting him into the inner circle because it's not a real treasure. And we're not letting that guy in. This is exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the FBI agent trying to destroy the movement of Christianity. And if the disciples had made it up and it was a lie, when the Apostle Paul gives word to them and says, I saw Jesus resurrected and I believe and I want to be a part of the movement, there is no way in the world they would have let him in unless it was true. Unless they knew that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they believed, in fact, that he did reveal himself to the Apostle Paul. You see, we believe that Jesus is God because it is, in fact, the most rational and reasonable belief and conclusion. Either the disciples lied or Jesus is God. What is the most rational and reasonable conclusion? I believe that it's, in fact, that he rose from the dead, that he is God, that he is the I am, that he does provide life. And as we begin this season of Lent, I want to encourage you to consider the reality of who Jesus is, that we are invited to come to worship and to receive grace from Jesus, who is the I am, who invites you to himself, who did in fact die for you and rise from the dead, and there is a host of evidence proving it. And so I hope you wrestle through your doubts, but I hope that you come to see Jesus for who he truly is. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would not be like the Jews in the synagogue that look to discredit and insult you, throwing mental stones. 
God, we, we pray that we would know that you can take our questions and our doubts and that we would be brave enough to ask them, but we would also humble ourselves before you that we would see the host of evidence of who you truly are and that we would not throw stones, but we would surrender ourselves before you. Because, Jesus, you are God who has come for us. You are our Savior, and this is what we believe, God. I pray that you would excite us with the truth of who you are. That we would be motivated to share that truth. Not ashamed, not afraid of questions. Excited to share who you are. To explore you, God, and to invite others in as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.